You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Amen. All right, well, kids, you can head out to children's ministry this morning, and uh, we'll give you guys a minute to, to make your way out. Corey, can you grab Bibles for us? If, uh, if you don't have a Bible on you, um, go ahead and slip up your hand, and Corey will get a Bible into that hand. We want you to have God's Word um, open in front of you. Uh, I know we put some of it up on the screen to try to help out, um, but we want you to have it in front of you. Uh, I want you to be able to see God's Word in context, be able to follow along. Um, I have nothing to offer. Uh, I have no wisdom uh, to give you this morning. Um, all I have is, is this, is God's word. And so we want to look together into God's truth and, uh, and to see his, uh, his word and as it applies to us. Um, and you can turn uh, to Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse 15 is what we'll be looking at this morning. Um, I don't know about you, I, I grew up in a small town and. Uh, it's funny, in a small town, um, when you meet, meet new people, especially as a younger person, um, they ask you a different questions than they do in the city. If you're in the city uh, and you meet someone new, they'll ask, where are you from? Which is a helpful question. People want to know. It's a, it's a helpful piece of information as you're trying to get to know somebody. There's certain assumptions and implications that you can draw from where somebody has come from. But in a small town, and I know many of you, like me, grew up in small towns, you know what I'm talking about. They don't ask you where you're from. Um, they have a different version of that question, a more specific version. They ask you who your parents are. Who are your parents? Partly because nobody comes to a small town, especially if you're a young person. Um, you're there because your family's always been there and you just haven't had a chance to leave yet. Um, but everybody knows everybody. And, and, uh, and, and knowing someone's parents tells you a lot about who they are. Uh, a lot of questions are answered by, uh, by asking that one question. And, and so as we approach Christmas, the question becomes significantly relevant. You imagine young Jesus sent uh, uh, maybe by his father, small town Nazareth, over to the, to the hardware store to, to pick up some nails. And, uh, and the storekeeper says, now remind me, young fellow, who's, who's your father again? Huh, that could be an interesting conversation. Um, there's some big questions at play here. Over the last few months, um, we've been working through uh, the book of Genesis. And uh, as we approach Christmas, we've just kind of hit the brakes here and zoomed in as we come to Genesis 3.15. Because this is a, a fantastic little piece of scripture here. Now all scripture is fantastic. It's all God breathed. It's all profitable for training and teaching and reproof. And, uh, and yet some passages are significantly richer. And, uh, and there's this promise here this morning at the very beginning of the Bible in, in, in Genesis chapter 3 that, that's pointing forward to the coming of Christ. That, that's pointing forward to Christmas. And so that's why we're, we're stopped. We're calling it Christmas in a nutshell. It's, it's all packed down into this little package here. God is uh, addressing the serpent. This is after um, the fall. This is after his deceiving Adam and Eve. And, and God is laying out for the serpent the curse of sin. And it's right in the middle of that, in this dense little nugget of truth, um, there's this one verse that is that has been called the sum and summary of the entire scriptures. It's all packed in here. And though Jesus wouldn't come for another 4,000 years or so, um, already here God is pointing forward. He's beginning to, to, to unveil his plan. 
Last week, we, we worked through uh, verses 14 to 15 um, exegetically, which is our typical way of working verse by verse in context, what is said right here in this passage. This week, we're going we're gonna to come at it a little bit differently. We're going to look at it a little more theologically. And so we're going to um, start in this text and, and then just kind of walk it forward a little through Scripture and, and draw some connecting lines. And, and so this will be our anchor, but we'll, we'll be moving around a little more than usual. But it starts here, Genesis 3. Let me read uh, Genesis 3, starting verse 14 through to 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. God, thank you for your sovereign plan that even um, from the Garden of Eden, from from before the foundation of the world, um, you had planned to send your son to rescue us, to glorify yourself in the birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Help us this morning, Father, to to handle your word faithfully, um, to treat it with the honor and respect that it deserves, to humble ourselves before it. God, open our eyes, open our ears, that we might see and hear um, your truth, that we might see wonderful things in your word this morning, um, that you might be at work in us, building your church, Father. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, looking through this passage, just exegetically, what, it, what is here in its context, the first thing we see is the curse of sin. God takes sin seriously, incredibly seriously. In, in cursing the serpent to, to crawl on its belly and to eat the dust, God is communicating to Satan. Of course, it was Satan at work through the serpent there in the garden. He's communicating to Satan that because of your sin, because of your rebellion against me, you'll be cursed. You'll be absolutely humiliated and and crushed. There's no opportunity given to the serpent for restoration, for forgiveness, only judgment. God will judge sin, and we see that so clearly in his judgment here. The next thing we see is this constant struggle. There's this curse of sin, but then there's this this constant struggle. The, The world would have this enmity, this battle between um, the, the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. For generations to come, there would be this ever-present spiritual battle, a battle to, between trusting the Lord and following him and, and doubting him and disobeying him, a battle of spiritual life and death. Finally, then, God promises a coming Savior, and that's the, the second half of verse 15, the language changes. He, he was talking about the, the offspring in, in kind of a group sense, the, all of the offspring in a general way, and then all of a sudden, he makes an appearance. It's very specific. Now there, there will be a, a, a specific offspring. So all of the offspring will, will be involved in this battle, but there will be one offspring, a male offspring, who would end the battle. Through, uh, through him... It says that the, the serpent would, um, would strike or, or crush or bruise his heel, and he would strike or bruise or crush the serpent's head. So the serpent would hurt him, would do damage to him, but he would absolutely destroy the serpent. And of course, that's pointing forward. That future offspring is Jesus who would, who would be bruised on the cross, but in rising from the grave would show that his, his temporary death was actually dealing out a fatal blow, um, the ultimate uh, destruction of, of Satan and, and, and of sin and death. And so that's the heart of this promise here, this passage. It's pointing forward. It's, it's building on this, this narrative of Scripture. The whole of the Old Testament, uh, then, is, is building on this, pointing forward, looking forward to the coming of Christ. 
And then the whole of the New Testament is, is pointing back to his first coming, his, his birth and life and death and resurrection, and, and then pointing forward to his second coming when he will complete this great and glorious work. And so that's the heart of this little verse here, um, this, this clearly, explicitly promised Savior, Rescuer who is coming. And, and yet, now we have this privilege of seeing the Bible in its completed form. We've seen God's plan unfold and play out. We have, we have 65 more books of the Bible to look at, and we can see things that, that were in that promise that weren't initially very clear. But they've played themselves out now, and so we can draw some lines. And so um, to come back to that illustration of, of Christmas in a nutshell, we, we, we see the seed contains all of that genetic information, but not all of it is obvious in the seed stage. Once the tree is grown and matured, then you can look back and say, oh, oh, I see, that was, an, that was an oak tree contained in that seed. I didn't see that at first. So that's what we're going to do today. Um, and one of the things hinted at in Genesis 3.15 um, is, is this interesting phrase here, the offspring of the woman. Crucial information as we approach Christmas, the celebration of the birth of Jesus, if we... Um, if we want to truly know him, if we want to understand who he really is, this is a good place to start. The basic question, where are you from? Who, who are your parents? And in asking that question of Jesus, we open up this treasure trove of, of theological riches. And, and so um, I want to look at this from, from three angles as we, as we ask, why is, why is Jesus called the offspring of the woman? Well, we can draw that out. We see this is this is leading up to what we call the virgin birth. Properly, maybe we should call it the virgin conception. That's the, that's the miracle, but virgin birth is our common um, language, so we'll use that. I want to come at it from three different angles this morning. First, we're going to look at the, the foundation of the virgin birth, the, um, the biblical evidence, the scriptural teaching on what it is. Second, then we'll look at the, the implications of the virgin birth. What does it mean? Um, what do we know about Jesus because of this? And then finally, we'll look at the application of this truth. What does it mean to us? How do, how do we live differently because this is true? So first, the, the foundation. Um, look closely. And again, they're the end of Genesis 3.15. Um, there are some things that are strange about this passage. It, it begs some questions that need to be answered. Um, we have to ask why verse 15 speaks of the seed of the woman, of Eve, and not of the man. It's odd. It's very odd. Genesis has already made clear that it was Adam who was given the responsibility to, to lead and provide and protect. It was Adam who was given the, the rules of the garden. It was Adam who was charged with this mandate to, to fill the earth and subdue it. And Adam is the one who's to be leading the way here. So why would the Lord say that it's the offspring of the woman that would destroy the serpent. At very least, why wouldn't he say the offspring of both of them? And it's especially odd because the word offspring there uh, is the Hebrew word zera, and, 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 and it's, it speaks of offspring, of, of children, but it also um, is often translated seed, which is part of kind of that Hebrew understanding of offspring. Um, it could, it could be taken much more specifically, literally, that the egg comes from the woman, the seed comes from the man, and, and, and that's how they understood offspring. And, and that's why through the Old Testament, through the rest of the book of Genesis, as you read the genealogies, it's all about um, the, the, the descendants of the men. It follows the men through the genealogy from one generation to the next. Um, there are only two other places in Genesis that speak of uh, the seed of the woman. And, and I find this very interesting. I was laughing to my, my wife. Um, I was actually reading someone who was arguing against the virgin birth. And, and he brought up these verses as reasons to say, look, seed of the woman is not special. It's not an odd phrase. Genesis uses this, this phrase elsewhere. So, well, let's dig into that. Does it? What is it meant by that? Well, the first one is Genesis 16.10 which speaks of the seed of Hagar. Of course, Hagar is Abraham's servant girl. 
And so we're, we're contrasting here. God was, had promised Abraham the seed, the offspring would come through him. And so there, this is part of that seed conversation. Um, but the, the true seed would come through Abraham and Sarah. And this is speaking of Hagar, uh, who, who gives birth to Ishmael. And so it's, it's right in the middle of this, this conversation about the offspring that's in question here. The second time, I think, is more uh, significant. We see the seed of the woman uh, is the seed of Rebekah. Genesis 24, 60. Here it says, um, They blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Rebekah, of course, is the wife of Isaac, the offspring of Abraham. And God has promised that the rescuer, the, the serpent crusher, would come through their line. And so this offspring of Rebekah, who would destroy his enemies, um, this is the seed of the woman. This is, is this a normal thing to say? No, no, he's picking up on the language of Genesis 3.15. He's, he's drawing some lines together and pointing forward to the ultimate seed of the woman who would possess the gates of his enemies, who would destroy his enemies. It's pointing forward to Christ. And so the phrase, this seed of the woman, is, is significant, and it, and it begs this, this question about the offspring of the woman. Where's this, where's this going? Um, so, um, again, there are those who would say there's nothing about the virgin birth in, in Genesis 3. Um, I would agree that it's not explicit. It's not clear. Um, I don't think Adam and Eve heard that and went, oh, there's going to be a virgin birth. Um, but I do think they went, that's odd. Something's there. there there's something that's, that's building. And so as we pick this theme up, as we follow through Scripture, um, flip over to Isaiah chapter 7. Um, go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. We'll spend uh, a few minutes um, around Isaiah 7. Uh, no doubt you're familiar with uh, Isaiah 7.14. God promises the virgin will be with child. But the context here is that God's people are under attack. They are threatened by, by these two armies who have joined together, who, who absolutely outnumber and overpower them. They have no hope. And, and so Isaiah 7, 7 to 9, the Lord tells King Ahaz, don't worry. Don't worry. You're threatened. You're, you're outnumbered. You're overpowered. But I will protect you. I will destroy the enemies that threaten you. Verse 14 then is the Lord saying to Ahaz, here's a sign, here is proof that it's me, that it's the Lord who will, who will rescue you. And then we read that, those, those famous words, Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Of course, we know Emmanuel means God with us. Here's the sign that God will be with you. And he's, he, verse 15, he shall eat curds and honey. And when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, for before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose kings you dread will be deserted. So, so get the picture here. God's people have this death sentence hanging over them. They are about to be absolutely destroyed. And God says, I will save you. I will rescue you. Fear not. I will be with you, and this is the sign that I will rescue. This is proof that it's going to happen. Um, the virgin will bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. And of course, Emmanuel means God with us. Verse 15, um, he's, he's giving them a time frame. I think that's right at the heart of this sign for Isaiah. It's a, it's a time frame. The young woman, the virgin, is going to become pregnant. And by the time that boy is old enough um, to to understand good and evil, to know right from wrong. By the time he's mature enough to understand right from wrong, he's going to be eating curds and honey. Well, curds and honey, um, that's pretty luxurious food. That's peacetime food. The, the, the nation uh, will be living in, in peace and prosperity um, by the time he's old enough to know right from wrong. So there's a lot of debate over this passage. Is, is Isaiah talking about uh, a young woman, and, and, and is, is she uh, literally going to remain a virgin? Is this going to be a miraculous conception? Or possibly this is referring to um, Isaiah and his 
wife, who maybe at the time was a virgin. She, she hadn't conceived yet, but she will soon. And uh, I tend to lean that way. Um, looking at um, Isaiah 8.3, I think this is the same child that is, that is born. Um, you, can, you can dig into more of that later. Um, but the focus here is not so much that the, that the virgin would miraculously come, become pregnant. Um, it seems to, to, be the, the, um, to me that, that she's pregnant the old-fashioned way, but rather that she would have this child, and by the time the child was old enough to know right from wrong, God will have rescued his people. He will have accomplished this task. Either way, this is a promise. It's a promise that, that God will be with his people, that he will rescue them. And it will be marked by a virgin having a son. Now, let's look ahead to chapter 9. And, and this, again, should sound very familiar. We're, we're kind of in the same stream of promises here. Verse 2, the, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And you can skim down and see the completeness of this victory that God is promising, the wonder of this salvation that's coming. Um, and, and then we come down to verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And do you notice what happened? Verse 14, 714, there's this promise of a child. And that promise builds and, and there's application for it for them then and there. He would that God would save them from these opposing armies. But by the time we get to the end of chapter 9, um, this is escalated. There's more here than can be fulfilled by this, this child in Isaiah's day. This is, this is not about uh, any child in his day. This promise is, is one of many in Scripture that has a, a dual fulfillment. Right? There was the promise that God would rescue his people from these enemies, but at the same time, God was pointing forward and saying, oh, there's a greater rescue to come. There's more. It's not just this, this rescuing from these physical enemies. This is just a picture of what's coming. And so Isaiah 9 then is drawing our eyes again forward to Christ. He's saying God will, will rescue from sin and death. He's picking up on Genesis 3.15 and he's saying this is where it's heading. Pointing forward to Jesus. And if there's any doubt in that, look at Matthew 1, um, starting at verse 18. I'll give you a second just to slip over to Matthew chapter 1. It says this, Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now in Isaiah, the baby um, maybe was conceived naturally, maybe not, but but that's irrelevant. As this promise comes to Jesus, everything is elevated. Matthew makes it explicit. Verse 18 says, um, says it twice. Before they had come together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. He leaves no room for, for wiggle here. It's clear as can be. Verse 20, the angel confirms this a second time, telling Joseph, don't divorce her. Well, he would only be thinking about divorcing her if, if he had nothing to do with this child. 
And he, don't, don't divorce her because the baby conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Matthew makes the virgin birth of Jesus explicitly clear. The virgin birth often gets held up uh, as kind of a second-tier doctrine, right? As if it was discardable. It doesn't really matter. Back in the kind of the turn of century liberalism, the 1800s, that was one of the first things to go. Like, really, we don't need to believe in these myths. I don't know if you remember Rob Bell. Uh, he was part of the emerging church movement, and, uh, which was really just a recycling of that turn of the century liberalism. He famously said, uh, it would not be a big deal if we discovered today that Jesus had an earthly father named Larry. It just wouldn't affect Christianity. It doesn't matter. Following Jesus is still the best thing to do. Um, is he right? I mean, in a, in a minute, we'll, we'll talk about the implications of the, the virgin birth theologically and all the things that, that, are, that are wrapped up in that. But at the most basic level, um, the virgin birth matters partly because the Bible teaches it, because it's right there, because Matthew and, and Luke and John and Paul obviously believed it and taught it. And, and if the scripture is wrong, we're worse lying at this point. How can we trust it on anything? Why take the Bible seriously at all? The scripture is either trustworthy and true or it's not. And the implications of that are, are huge. You can't just pick apart pieces of the Bible. You can't just take some and leave some. It all, it all hangs together. Genesis 3.15 says the, the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, would, would rescue them from their enemies, and that's working its way through the whole Bible. Notice back in Matthew 1, um, verse 21, the angel goes on to say um, that they should name this baby Jesus. Jesus means Yahweh saves. That's, that's what that name means, the Lord saves. They should name him that because... He will save his people from their sins. He's the rescuer. He's the one. Verse 22 says, All this took place then to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes from Isaiah. And so uh, this is the true salvation of the Lord. This is what God has been building and working toward. This is what God has always been promising from the beginning. Not just the crushing of armies that threaten his people, not, not giving them temporary earthly victory, but ultimately crushing the head of the serpent. Giving them eternal spiritual victory, a victory of, of infinitely greater value. Quick question, do we, do we read our Bibles this way? As you're reading through the Old Testament, um, this is what I meant last week when I said read, read the entire Old Testament with, with Genesis 3.15 in the back of your mind. The Old Testament, all of it, is pointing forward to, is fulfilled in Jesus. Luke 24, 27, Jesus is talking with the, the travelers on the road to Emmaus. And it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted, them, uh, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What a Bible class that would have been. Jesus is opening up to Moses, that's the Pentateuch, the first five books, and all of the scriptures. And he's saying they're all about me. This, this is all pointing to me. That, that's the, the foundation, the, the virgin birth from, from Genesis 3, 15 through Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9. It's all culminating in, in, in Matthew and in Luke. It, it's all culminating in Christ. Let's shift then a little bit from the, the foundations of the virgin birth to the implications. As we're looking at this, this topic theologically, um, what are the theological implications? What do we draw from this? As we, as we figure out who Jesus' parents are, what are the assumptions that we can make about him based on that? The first, the most amazing, I think, is the incarnation. We sang about it this morning. Uh, God in, uh, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Um, that's it. Uh, it it's, it's deity in flesh. It's God himself in human form. Uh, John 1.14 puts it this way, the word became flesh. When he begins with, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God and was with God, and now the word has become flesh. 
God himself has become man. Now, it's probably going too far to say that, that it had to be a virgin birth. God certainly could have created a, a genuine human another way and, and united his divine nature with that human and, and descended from heaven. But you can see how in that we would have a hard time truly appreciating and seeing and understanding that Jesus was genuinely human. I don't know. He came down from the sky. Is he, is he truly human? On the other hand, God could have brought about a human in the natural way with a, a mother and father and just united his deity, embedded his deity in that human. But you can see how it would have been hard for us to truly appreciate his actual divinity. Well, we know his mom and his dad. He's a man just, just like us. And so it's not as though God had to do it this way, but God did do it this way. And as we look at it, it seems to clearly communicate that, God is, that, that Jesus is both God and man. He has a human mother and a divine father. Now there's complexity here that is just beyond our ability to understand. Um, Jesus is one person um, with two natures, right? We talk about um, the Trinity being three persons and one nature. There's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but they're all God. Um, Jesus is one person with two natures. There's only one Jesus. He doesn't have split personalities or anything like that. He's not having conversations with himself inside his head. Um, he's one united person, and he is fully and completely God, and at the same time, fully and completely man. His deity is not mixed with or changed by his humanity, and, and his humanity is not mixed with or changed by his deity. Um, one person, two natures. If you want to dig deeper down that rabbit hole, just go home this afternoon and Google uh, hypostatic union and go nuts. Um, it's fantastic. But the incarnation uh, is made so clear in the virgin birth. Those basic facts. He is God and he is man. The second implication of the virgin birth, um, we see his sinless perfection. Um, since the fall of Adam, every human born is born in sin. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. When Adam sinned, he plunged the entire human race into sinfulness, into a state of rebellion and judgment against God. That's how David can say, Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. He's not talking about his, his mother's sin. He's not questioning his mother's uh, morality. He's talking about himself. He's saying, I was sinful from conception. In my mother's womb, I was a sinner. He has this inherited sinfulness from a sinful mother and a sinful father. That's why Ephesians 2 verse 3 says, We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That describes our sinfulness. Our, our sin comes out of our passions and our desires. Boy, our world gets that wrong, right? Comes out of our heart. Follow your heart? No, no, no. The heart is deceitful above all else, desperately sick. The heart is where our sin lives. And so it, it comes out of our passions, our desires are wrong, and our passions and desires are wrong because we have this sin-bent nature. It's bound up in, in who we are as, as humans in the line of David. But in the virgin birth, something different happens. There's a new paradigm all of a sudden. Luke 1.35, the angel says to Mary, um, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. Follow the logic there. Because he's not conceived in the typical way, because Jesus is the product of the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary, therefore, he would be holy. He would be not sinful. 
So Jesus is fully human, but did not have a sinful nature. You think, well, does that, is he still fully human? Oh, yeah, because remember, Adam was not created with that sinful nature either. All right? Our first design was not bent by sin. Jesus is actually a little bit more human than we are. We are twisted human. He is humans as we were meant to be. Hebrews 7, 26 says this of Jesus. For it was indeed fitting that he should have that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He's fully human, but completely without sin. He's, he's separated from us in that one key way. Every normal human birth produces uh, another sinful human, but the miracle of the virgin birth the work of the Holy Spirit in Mary produces a sinless human. Now, putting those together, um, fully God and fully man, human but, but sinless, we see in Jesus this, this third implication of the virgin birth, that Jesus was the perfect substitute. This is, this is astounding. These, these pieces come together in this perfect constellation and, and, and through the miracle of the virgin birth, we see that, that Jesus becomes this, this perfect substitute. You see, we already noted Romans 5.12, through Adam all became sinners. Sin spread to all of humanity. And the penalty for sin is death. We are under this death sentence from from the moment of conception. And God is holy. God is righteous and just. He will judge all sin. Some people think that, that God maybe just sweeps sin under the rug. That when God forgives, he just pretends like it never existed. He just kind of ignores it, pretends like it, it never happened. No. No, that is not the case. God is just. God is righteous. He is the perfect judge. We would have no time for a judge who, who declared uh, the, the, the murderous pedophile guilty and then said, but we're just going to let it go. That's not a nice judge. That's a wicked judge. God is not unjust. He will punish all sin fully and completely. But what he can do is provide the perfect substitute and pay that price himself. That substitute, however, would have to be something pretty special. First, for him to pay the penalty for humanity, well, he would have to be human. You can't be representative of a group that you're not part of. I can't stand up and say, I represent all metal workers because I'm not one of them. They would look at me and say, no, you don't. No one would take me seriously. It, it wouldn't work. He would have to be fully human. Secondly, he would also have to be sinless. If he was human with his own sin, um, he could first would simply just deserve his own penalty. He wouldn't be able to take the penalty of another, so he would need to be genuinely human and, and, and could represent humanity and then himself sinless so that he could take on the sins of another. But there is one last hurdle, the penalty for sin against an infinitely holy God. Right? The, the rebellion against the one who is infinitely worthy of our respect and honor is an infinite penalty. That's why when Jesus talks about hell, he, he, he calls it a place of eternal fire, Matthew 25, 41. Paul says that the enemies of God will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction in 1 Thessalonians. John, in, in Revelation 20, 20, says that, that hell is a place where there will be tormenting day and night forever and ever. The wrath of God that I deserve. The intensity of my rightful punishment would take me an eternity to absorb. I would have to spend infinity in hell to pay that punishment. And so even if I could somehow be sinless, and even if I could somehow wedge myself in the place to take the penalty of another, 
I, I don't have the capacity to do more than one. Actually, I don't even actually have the, the capacity to do one. And so to take the penalty for sin for many, Jesus would not only have to be human and sinless, he would have to be an infinite being. He would have to be God himself. It's the only way. It's the only solution. And so in the virgin birth, where we see the the humanity of Jesus and the sinlessness of Jesus and the deity of Jesus, in that we see that God is putting together this perfect substitute, the only possible way of salvation. Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God and to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation means to, to, to bear the wrath, to take the penalty. In the virgin birth, we see Jesus as, as fully God and fully man, as completely sinless, as this perfect substitute. The, the implications of the virgin birth are, are staggering. The virgin birth points so clearly to Jesus as, as our only hope of salvation. And so, if those are the foundations and the implications of the virgin birth, what then are the applications? What do we do with that information? Right? Like there are, there are different kinds of truths and, and facts. Have you ever heard of neutrinos? I hadn't until about a year ago. They're super cool. Neutrinos are these infinitesimally small particles, and, and, and they're produced by nuclear reactions. And so our sun is constantly throwing out neutrinos. And, and, and if you're sitting here this morning, um, you have 60 billion neutrinos per square centimeter. Just try. <laughs> Just try. 60 billion per square centimeter neutrinos, and and they're not just hitting you. They are passing through this roof, and they are going through you and continue merrily on their way through the earth and out the other side into outer space. It's crazy. It's ridiculous. Um, I I tried to understand how they've found these, and and my my brain just doesn't get all the way there. It's cool, but what do I do about it? I mean, should we try to stop them or hide from them? There's, there's, it's just, that's it. It's neat and, and it's over. On the other hand, there are bits of information, like if you were lying in your bed and someone tapped you and said, hey, your house is on fire, or maybe you're going along your merry way and someone lets you know, hey, um, just around that corner, there's a million dollars free for the taking, right? Th- these are pieces of information you want to act on. You have to do something about this. And so as we look at the virgin birth, um, this is not like neutrinos. All right? Some people want to treat it that way. It's kind of neat. It's interesting, but eh, what, is it, what do we do about it? What does it really mean? But if we understand the truth of the virgin birth and, and we see the, the implications of it clearly, it actually has incredibly significant call for response, for, for action in us. The first application of the virgin birth in our own lives, uh, it it ought to be humility. Humility. The virgin birth ought to make us incredibly humble before God. The necessity of the virgin birth, the fact that it had to happen, is a judgment against the human race. When God promised that there would be an offspring of the woman, that he would crush the head of the serpent, um, we don't say it this way, but our natural instinct is, it's probably me, right? I got this. Somebody's going to live in a way that pleases and honors God. I can do that. We're the ones who are going to do better and impress him. Ironically, it's because of our sinful hearts and minds that we tend to somehow think that we can overcome sin, that I can be good enough. God's going to look at my life and, and my good deeds and my sacrifices, and he's going to say, Right on. Good job. He's going to be impressed with me. It's not the case. It's not the case. The fact that there had to be a virgin birth means that, no, you're sinful too. God didn't choose you because you're a wreck also. 
Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Flip side of that, others look at what God requires and and we look at our sin and we're crushed. We're destroyed. We're burdened to the point of despair. Oh, I'm such a miserable worm. How How could I ever be loved by God? I'm such a wretched, wretched person. And you're not wrong. You're not. That is the the bad news of Christmas. That's the the dark side of Christmas. The coming of Christ clearly communicates that your sin before God is crushing, is worse than you think it is. Even if it brings you to despair, it's, it's worse. But the problem is you're still looking at yourself. Even in your despair, you're showing that you're still actually putting your hope in you. Our sin is so significant, the pit is so deep, that no human in history could ever be even close to getting out. The only hope of humanity was for God to do something that we could not. For God himself to come and and do for us what we never could do. The miracle of the virgin birth um, should be this crushing blow to our pride. You can't do it. It was necessary because of this hopeless situation. You're not the one. You're not the one person who will uh, finally be the one to impress God on your own, and you're not the one who has finally done something so horrible and evil that you're beyond the reaches of God's grace. It's humility before the Lord. That's the, the first application coming out of the virgin birth. The second, then, is worship. Looking back at at Genesis 3.15, notice again the Lord was speaking to the serpent. He hadn't even turned to Adam and to Eve yet. All they had done so far was make excuses and and try to pass the buck. Um, God was already moving toward them in rescue. He was already revealing his generous, gracious plan. And again, in in the virgin birth, we see the, the initiative of God in salvation. Mary wasn't looking to get pregnant. She wasn't trying to find a way to to save humanity. Joseph wasn't trying to help, nor did he have any ability in himself to do what needed to be done. The salvation. from, From conception to completion, it's God's thing. He does it. It's his initiative. It's his power. It's his salvation. Romans 5, 8 to 10. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. If God was waiting on us to do something, If he was waiting for our sinful, corrupt hearts to be welcoming and receptive and inviting of his salvation, he would have been waiting a long time. No, he was active. Well, while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, he proved his love. He sent his son, born in the manger, dying on the cross, rising from the grave. And and in that act of God, Sinners are justified. Enemies are reconciled. God did it. Where were you? What were you doing? We were busy hating him, busy fighting against him. And he rescued us. 1 Corinthians 1, 28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. In the virgin birth, we see God becoming to us everything we needed. He became to us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. It's because of him, Paul writes, that you are in Christ Jesus. And so we boast in him. 
We worship him. We don't get to say, uh, look what I did. We, we stand back and say, wow, God, look what you've done. Look what you've done. We worship him. So looking at the virgin birth ought to produce humility and worship. And then finally, faith. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, to, to crush the head of the serpent, to undo what he had done. The serpent came in pride. He led Adam and Eve into doubting God's word, into doubting God's goodness. Jesus came in humility, born in a manger, to prove the, the truthfulness of God's word and the truthfulness of, of God's goodness. Faith, in many ways, is parallel to humility. Um, something actually um, Corey Dyer said to me a, a few years ago that's really stuck with me. Um, we were talking about all the, the miracles in Scripture and these, these crazy things that we read through the Old Testament. And, and, and his comment was that it's as though God has, has purposely placed these roadblocks for our pride. The proud, the self-righteous, they look at Scripture. They place themselves as, as an authority above Scripture and they begin to speculate and pontificate. Even many who call themselves Christians will, will stand as they, as they pick apart God's word, saying, well, this is probably true and that's probably not. This is probably God's word and that's probably just added along the way, or this is from men. Which words would be trusted, which words aren't, which events are, are, are just kind of culturally outdated, and we know better now in our, in our enlightened era with our superior intellect. The virgin birth is just such a roadblock placed there by God on purpose. Doesn't make sense in our modern minds. We can't test it and, and prove it. Why should we believe it? Worse, it crushes our pride. And it calls us to faith. It calls us to humbly accept and believe in God's word and in God's goodness. And to put our faith, not, not just in the virgin birth, but in that perfect Savior who entered the world through it, our only hope. There are those who celebrate Christmas because it's, it's cute, it's fun, it's nostalgic, there's, a, there's an air of magic about it, but, but there isn't anything serious to it. There's nothing beneath the surface of that. And there are those who approach Christmas seeing in it the, the sinful, desperate state of mankind. And the wonder of God sending a Savior. And they're brought to their knees. In humility, in worship, and in faith. Let's pray. Father.